Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Bradley Andrews, president of Brevard College in North Carolina. Brad has a diverse higher ed background. He has leadership experience in student affairs, enrollment management, and fundraising. And this is his second college presidency at Brevard. He was also a college president prior to this. So welcome, Brad. Thank you, Sarah. I am grateful for the opportunity to join you today. Yeah, and I'm excited as well because Brevard is a liberal arts college and you enroll about 750 undergraduate and some graduate students. Colleges enrolling under 1,000 they're sometimes flagged as financially vulnerable. We kind of look at them as like, how are they going to make this work? And yet, small schools, they still need the same infrastructure, staffing, services, facilities, but they do lack the higher tuition revenue of some of our larger schools that we know of. But Brevard, it's making its small size work to its advantage. You guys have repeatedly topped the U.S. News and World Report for best universities in the South, so you should be very proud of that. And I just can't wait to hear how you're making a small school work. So, Brad, let's start here. Let's. You have the benefit of multiple perspectives, right? You have had various roles. This is your second college presidency. Let's start with a high-level view. Tell us about the imperatives that you focus on and why. Sure. So from my perspective, I believe that there are eight imperatives for small private college, eight things that absolutely have to be in place. Five are more operational and three are more strategic. So to me, the first one, and it all starts here, is we must live within our means. We must produce a net operating income each year. Bad things start to happen quickly if that's not the case. Second, we need to conduct efficient and effective operations. We have limited capacity, limited resources, so we need to stretch every dollar, every hour, every resource we have as far as it will go. Third, we must maintain high morale. We are in the relationship business, essentially, at the end of the day, and morale represents our sustainable capacity to invest in those relationships with students. Fourth and fifth are excellence in delivery of mission and recognized excellence in our market. Those are the core pieces of who we are and what we do, why we exist and how we are going to continue to exist. And then the last three that are more strategic to me are that a small college, it's imperative that a small college has a path to growth. And what I mean is a path to growth of net revenue in order to be able to handle inflation, volatility, right? Volatility and enrollment. We have to have a path to growth of net revenue. Then seventh, we need to have a reliable source of capital for investment. I'm happy to talk more about that, but I just believe we need to incrementally increase the quality of what we're doing every year. We need to incrementally increase our value proposition as a private college every year, and we need to have a reliable source of capital to be able to invest in that. And then the last piece is strategic discipline. Is I think it's imperative that we have the discipline to invest everything that we have, everything that we can into our core value proposition. So to me, those are 
the eight imperatives and their metrics associated with each one. But that's what I focus on. So I appreciate that kind of high level analysis. There's a couple of things that I'd like to just kind of dive into a little bit deeper. You started with operational and ended with strategic. Was that a strategy? Like in your mind, do you have to focus on operational first or was that just a coincidence of how you laid those out? So I think they're inextricably intertwined always, right? And so how I operate, we operate with a strategic plan. And in addition to that strategic plan, every year annually, we have a retreat of leadership on campus and we identify the two or three strategic priorities that are going to guide us this particular year, right? So the strategic must guide and needs to be in place. But the way that I view it is those operational imperatives, if we're not meeting those, the wheels will fall off the car. The strategic imperatives, if we're not meeting those, we're going to run out of gas. So either way, we're not going to be successful. All of those are indeed, in my mind, imperatives. But it seems to me that today and this week and this month and this term, we need to make sure to have the operational imperatives addressed and continuously and long term, those need to operate within the strategic imperatives and that vision. Okay, I want to follow up on one of the strategic imperatives. You talked about a path to growth. So when I hear that phrase, I immediately think of either creating new academic programs or I think about enrollment management. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you meant? And maybe I'm off base on those. No, I think that's good. To me, I think of growth in a number of different ways. We can grow our core business. We can grow the quality of what we're currently doing by investing in our current programs and increasing that their quality and that piece of our value proposition. For that to flow through to the bottom line, to net operating revenue each year, in my experience, takes longer. That's a longer, it must be maintained, but it's a longer term payback of investment of new dollars, right? Then the path to growth, I think of primarily are new revenue streams, altogether new revenue streams, growing your summer conference business, new revenue streams in terms of new academic programs. Here at Brevard College, we are getting more involved in online graduate programs, for instance. So it may be that piece. It may be growth in fundraising operations, right? Especially unrestricted efforts each year. But probably primarily for all of us at small private colleges that don't have an endowment north of $500 million, it is going to come back to basically total enrollment and discount rate. Right. It's going to be enrollment management to continue to grow. So you produce increasing amount, a a sustainable maintenance, even a sustainable growth year after year in net tuition revenue. I think that's always going to be the core piece. Okay, so tell us about the imperatives that cause the most stress as you're, you know, factoring in the size of your college. Which ones cause you to lose sleep even? Yeah. So the two that stand out are the two that I just mentioned, right? And and so that would be any decrease in total enrollment in any given year, and certainly a trend in in decreasing enrollment, that's going to keep me up at night. And then second, the net operating income, having a positive net operating income. If we spend more than we make in any given year, I start to lose sleep over that. And so those are the two pieces. Do Are we maintaining or improving our total enrollment and at the end of the year, our net operating income? But any of those imperatives, if the trends matter to me, 
And so if we have a downward trend in any of those imperatives that I'm talking about, that keeps me up at night. That I, I, that to me feels like we are entering into a downward spiral and, and maybe some self-fulfilling negative progress that, that needs to be corrected. So that's what keeps me up at night. Net operating income, total enrollment, and then just overall scan of the institution. Do we have a, a trend that's negative in any of those key areas? Okay, so sticking with this idea of really making efficient, reliable operations and revenue streams, tell us about your budget decision-making process. What does it look like? And particularly in relation to how closely is it tied to the strategic plan. So tell us for you how you go about that so our listeners can kind of learn how that might play out. Sure. So so again, we like currently we have a strategic plan in place and, and that we are in year 5 of six or seven year focus on it. And so there are a couple key pieces left in the strategic plan. As I mentioned earlier, we also meet as a leadership group, an executive leadership team, a senior leadership team, and even mid-level leadership team each summer to identify what are our key priorities for the upcoming year. We need to be realistic about it, right? You, I, I'm a firm believer that you can't have, if you have eight priorities, you're not going to accomplish any of them. You need to have two or three priorities if you're going to get them done. Likewise, in the budget, if you have eight key priorities, none are going to be funded sufficiently. We need to identify the two or three priorities that we're really going to focus our energy and dollars on. So that our budgeting process really starts in the summer when we identify what are our key strategic priorities this year, pulling from the strategic plan. Then those are sort of the big rocks in the jar of the budget, if you will, the big rocks that we get in the jar first. Then the CFO leads the budget process. So then he will meet with the VP and the leadership team in each area to start to fill in the rest of the jar of the budget, to start to build out each area. And that will be informed by you know data and metrics and input from campus constituents. And we'll put together a first draft of the budget. It will be reviewed by cabinet. It will be reviewed by the board. We will test the assumptions in the budget. Then we pause and test the assumptions. Our revenue assumptions, is it realistic? Our enrollment assumptions, what about our annual unrestricted fundraising assumptions? We also test our cost assumptions. And then when we have that together and we have a budget that is at least balanced, if not generating a surplus that we can reinvest at the end of the year, then we take that to the board who reviews it, approves it, and that's the budget we operate under. So that, that's how we develop the budget. Now, once we get the budget in place with those strategic priorities funded and all of our operational realities addressed, budget changes are made throughout the year, right? We have the appro- approved budget that we use as a plan going into the year. The end of the year budget ends up being the roadmap of reality, what really happened. But we make adjustments and changes as we go throughout the year. Something comes up, there's a facility emergency, we need to figure out how to fit that within our existing budget, and we do so. So that's how we we approach the budget. We start with strategy, and once we get the budget approved, then the bottom line is non-negotiable. Then whatever comes up, whatever we need to do, we need to stay within that bottom line and figure out how we reallocate resources as necessary throughout the year. I'm hearing a really multi-layered, integrated budgeting process that starts with a strategic plan. And I really liked that phrase. I wrote it down, roadmap of reality. 
right? And I think that's so true. You know, we can't really see into the future. We have some data points that we work on. We have some energy and momentum. We believe in certain things. We go after it. And then we bump up against reality. So I I like that you highlighted this idea of we don't always end up where we thought we would, but we still will have to meet our bottom line. Like that is non-negotiable. I'm sure you've been in the position where you've had to make some tough financial decisions. Can you share with us, maybe even just from a general sense, what some of those tough financial decisions have been? Certainly. Always the toughest financial decisions are related to people. Right. So needing to eliminate positions or not renew positions due to resources or financial realities, those are always the toughest decisions, right? They are straightforward and must be done because of our financial realities, but they are very difficult. So I would acknowledge that first above all else as the toughest financial decision. Outside of that, though, or in addition to that, I would say that for me, the toughest financial, as I think about the concept of what's the most challenging part, the presidency, in terms of marshalling resources and and making financial decisions, it's a cumulative factor. It's an accumulation of no's that have to be shared every year, right? If we are committed, and we must be, to living within our means, That means, right, that there are many times, many, many times each month, each semester, each year where we have to say no to things that are good and right to do. We have to say no to things that we should be doing. We have to say no to things that faculty, staff and students care about, no to things that further our mission. We have to choose not to fix this sidewalk right now. We need, right? There are just a lot of no's that need to happen if we are going to live within our means. We just can't afford to do everything that we want to do. We can't afford to fully fund all good ideas. We can't afford even to pay everyone what they are truly worth. And so to me, it's that accumulation over the course of the year of having to maintain financial discipline that is the toughest, I wouldn't say it's the toughest decision, but it's the toughest habit, the toughest practice, the the toughest component of the culture to build and to maintain. I appreciate that. And I love that turn of phrase. It's an accumulation of no's to create financial discipline. And it's not that you wouldn't want to make a different decision. Of course, we all want to say yes. But if we do, then we don't make our bottom line and then we don't continue. So I think that was really important. Okay, let's talk about the positive pieces of the budget. So when we think about what's working and what have you seen bring the most ROI in your experience? So measures or programming or it could be extracurriculars such as athletics. Tell us about things that you see just really bringing value to the university, right? I have to put in X amount of dollars, but it's going to reap the benefits. So do you have any examples of what's really worked well in your experience? I do. And I have, at the risk of offending all my friends and colleagues who are much smarter than I am, who who emphasize data and metrics and analytics more than I do. In my experience, I believe the answer to this question at any college, at any particular point in time, is really more of an art than a science, or maybe more of a craft than a science, right? So, so I believe that if you take any situation at a small private college at whatever point in time, each piece of the budget has an optimal funding level, right? Given ROI to the bottom line, given ROI in terms of student satisfaction, in terms of mission delivery, in terms of relationships with our core 
constituents, right? Each piece of the college's budget is connected and related to every other piece through opportunity cost, at least, right? And so I don't know that there's a single formula, right, or, or secret to success in terms of, all right, if we fund, if we put a million dollars towards athletics or towards this new program or towards this new facility, right, it, we're, it it's going to flow through the bottom line in this amount through revenue or donations or whatever. We can identify that and we need, we mu- we need to identify that. But there's also the question of opportunity cost. Could that million dollars be used to increase morale, which is going to pay off in relationships and student satisfaction and retention? Or could this, could these million dollars be, you know, invested over here and generate a different ROI? So to me, each institution is unique. And each year, or at least each era or period at that institution is unique. So answering that question, we have a donor gives us a million dollars and where is it best directed? Is it to improve the quality of what we're doing? Is it to double down on our commitment to mission that's, you know, that's going to pay off in so many ways for our students and the transformational educational experience that we're providing? Is it in facilities? Is it, if it's in facilities, if, is it something new or is it f- fixing something or repairing something or refreshing something that needs it. So I don't know that there is a right answer. I think that is the art of leadership and vision casting is coming down and saying, all right, we need to advance this institution forward. And I need all of the constituents to be inspired by this vision. I need faculty and staff and students and donors and prospective students and our community and our trustees and our alumni. I need all of our constituents to be inspired by the direction we're moving. And so it's through that lens that you figure out what are our opportunities to invest this particular gift or this particular surplus or windfall. I appreciate that perspective. What I'm hearing you say is it's not just transactional or functional, right? When we make decisions on where our money's going to go, like, oh, this will definitely bring in more students or this is deferred maintenance that just has to be done, but rather how do I use the money to inspire the whole community and more of our stakeholders with what we're doing? So I, I is that kind of a summary of what you said? or That's right. I've been at Brevard for a year and a half. And shortly after I came in, the CFO came and said, look, we've had this windfall. We have this money that can be invested. It's one, they're one-time funds. So what do you think we should do with it, right? And answering, I think you're right. Answering that question, I think the first, the primary lens is, I, again, I think it's the job of leadership to inspire commitment to the institution and its mission and its advancement. And so how can we do that? I would add that, so when Juan, when our CFO came in and asked me that question here at Brevard, it ended up, it became pretty, it was pretty clear to me right away that we should invest this in starting, not only starting new academic programs, but also in funding hires as we start the academic programs because workload is an issue for us. And so rather than just funding the new programs being started, building the enrollment and then hiring behind the enrollment, which is how we have to typically operate because of financial responsibility requirements, right? Instead, we took that money and we invested in commitment of hiring ahead of the program development, new faculty members in each of the three areas, right? So, so investment in people it is, is a key component in my mind, of moving the college forward, that 
at the end of the day, investing in people who are program developers, who are program builders, who are champions of programs that in turn inspire the commitment of their colleagues and students and prospective students. That's really the best way to increase the funds in my mind. It's a mul- it's a multiplier effect if you're able to to invest in in program builders across the college, academic, athletic, student affairs, extracurricular, whoever it may be across campus, but investing in program builders is to me is one of the secrets to success. Let's stay with this idea of labor and employment for a moment. We know labor is one of the largest expenditures of a college and you just made the case that it's probably the key component of your budget, that it's a must-have. So the war for talent right now in higher ed, it's real. We all know it. Recruiting and even retaining our employees, especially you mentioned student affairs, and that's one of one piece of your background. It's a challenge right now. How do you find that recruiting and retaining faculty and staff is possible if you can't compete on salary? You had also mentioned that sometimes we can't always pay them what they're actually worth. So how do you go about that? Do you have to fight for more resources and salary budgets? Do you do something else? Like, tell us about that. It's difficult. I've been at my last three positions have been as president or senior vice president at three different institutions in three different geographic regions and markets, right? And so I would say that there are challenges, right? There are pros and cons, to recruiting labor, no matter your location or your circumstance. So it's not easy any place that you're at. I believe specifically for small private colleges that are devoted to living within their means, committed to living within their means, it's particularly challenging, right? Because a lot of times you can, if you have the resources, you can use salary to overcome whatever your challenges are. And we just, we can't. So for us specifically at Brevard College, our housing costs and availability here where we live and the overall cost of living, those are real difficult challenges to overcome, especially when we have limited resources for salary. So, and while we're working to make college affordable for all of our students, 40% of our students are Pell students. And so just putting that all together, right? College affordability, living within your means, and then being in a high cost of living place, uh, it gets to be difficult. Now, we also have a lot of pros. This is a great place to be. Uh, Cost of living is high here because it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful location. It's a great community. So we attract people that way. We have an excellent culture, which I was felt so blessed to join. And I'm lucky to be a part of, but we have an excellent culture on campus. We have fantastic senior leadership. We have such a strong faculty and staff community and culture. And all of our surveys, all the feedback, all the data tells us that, as well as just everyone's attitudes and stories, right? And so even though we're not satisfied with our pay levels, even though we struggle with that, this is a good, at Brevard, this is a good place to be because everybody enjoys being here in this geographic location and in this community of colleagues. So I definitely worry about the long-term sustainability of attracting and retaining such great people. And we do have to have, we do have, and we need to have a plan to increase pay and compensation. And we're working on that with some recent advancements, but we also need to work to develop 
our own talent and leadership, right? So professional development, effective supervision and coaching become important as well. So bottom line is there is no easy answer. I don't believe there's no silver bullet. There's no one way forward. I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of trends, right? We just need to keep prioritizing and incrementally improving compensation, work culture, valuation and support our employees that are here as we are able to do and do more and do better each year. And that's going to lead us where we need to go, I believe. I would also answer, Sarah, I had one other thing, which I'll go, I believe that mission, right? Lived mission is incredibly important. I believe that the stronger the mission of any organization, the college, the stronger the mission and the commitment to that mission and how we live it, right? That those common shared values that inspire and motivate us and give meaning and purpose to our work, the more that we share that in common, the more satisfying a place is to work, I believe, the the more worthwhile it is to work at a place, even if we're making less than we can make someplace else. Brevard isn't unusual in that storyline, right? You know, higher ed, I think across the board, for the most part, tends to see the same struggle of we have these really great people. Gosh, we wish we could pay them what they could earn, you know, in the private sector, but you know, we're here for the mission. And as far as I'm concerned with so much of the research out right now on workplace and workplace resiliency, people would prefer to work in a healthy culture environment than make more money anyway, right? People actually leave toxic cultures. They don't leave for more money as often. And so I do think there's a lot to that, right? If you believe in your shared purpose of the mission of the university, as well as have a beautiful place to do it physically and the environment itself is really conducive for professional growth and satisfaction. I mean, those are pretty great things. So let's talk about the upside to having fewer resources. Normally it's a problem, right? It's what keeps us up at night. It's, you know, we pull our hair out on these tough financial decisions. But I find, and I've been at my university for 22 years, and I find that when we have to be forced into smaller budgets where we don't have all the resources that we'd like to have, we're actually a lot more careful, much more thoughtful. Maybe we don't waste as much, right? We don't throw money at the first problem and the second problem and then realize we've run out. Like we just sort of make really careful decisions. So I do see there that as an upside, right? We only spend what is essential. Have you found some creative solutions? Have you adopted anything to solve a need that's maybe you would have loved to have had the resources because it would have made your life easier, but instead you got creative? Do you have any of those examples to share with us? Sure. For us at Brevard College, insourcing has actually been a creative answer for us. And so we manage through our employees entirely as a college, our maintenance and facilities and dining and campus security programs. We do all of that in-house. And so it generates quite a bit of savings for us that we can use on initiatives that are core to our mission. And it also enables, there there are pros and cons, but it also by doing that, it enables us to cultivate more intimate relationships, I find, between sort of the auxiliary functions of the college and faculty and staff, right? And so the example would be in dining operations, running our own dining operations, as part of doing that, we are able, with very, very little cost to the, col- to the bottom line of the college, 
we're able to let faculty and staff eat for free in our cafeteria, five meals a week. So consequently, you go over to the dining commons at lunchtime during the week, and that's the heart of campus, energy and community-wise, right? There are faculty and staff and coaches and students and counselors and, right, everybody just in there interacting with each other. And so in a lot of ways, that's the most vibrant time and space on campus that I don't know we would that we would be able to afford if we outsourced had a differently professional dining operations, as an example. So for us, insourcing has been one way that that we've been able to address these types of things that has both financial benefits, but also added benefits. I'm actually kind of surprised to hear you say that because most people talk about outsourcing as a way to kind of save on the bottom line and improve customer satisfaction with the service. But you're saying, listen, we have figured out how to keep it in-house and turn it into a cultural highlight. And all I could think of was just how much faculty and staff probably love this free lunch. And we show up every darn day to get our free lunch, right? Isn't that how we bribe faculty and staff to do anything is some sort of freebie? <laughs> and meals are the best freebie. Oh my gosh, I love that. I'm picturing this like walking into this, you know, as you described it, kind of a vibrant, lively space where we're all gathering and breaking bread together. And you have probably see your you know, your same group of people and, you know, all that. So I think that sounds lovely. You, I want to come back to something you had mentioned much earlier in our episode about summer conferences. Is that another creative revenue stream for you? Tell us about that. Yeah, that is. We have a longstanding world-class conference on camp, actually a runner's camp, a three-week-long runner's camp on campus every summer. And that has been most of what we have done. And we are increasing by adding in church groups, boys and girls clubs groups, other groups throughout the summer campus. It does put a strain on our staff and our ability to turn the campus over from the past academic year to the upcoming academic year and get to all the deep maintenance and facility things that we need to get to. But it is also the case that we have excess capacity of space, residential space, meeting space, classroom space over the course of the summer. And so growing our summer conference program helps as long as we can manage it sustainably, right, does flow through to bottom line and additional resources again to reinvest in the core mission and business of the college. Let's turn to endowments. So kind of shifting our focus here, endowments, you had also mentioned earlier, maybe you don't have that half a billion dollar endowment at your disposal. Endowments are considered a vital indicator of financial health. So tell us about Brevard's endowment and how you use it and maybe any plans to grow it in the future. Just tell us about that. Yeah. So our endowment is currently about $33 million, you know, depending on the day or the week. And it is both way too small and it is also enough for us to work with. So we draw draw under 5% each year, try to draw about 4.75% each year down to our operating budget or about a million and a half dollars out of a $22 million annual budget. So uh, it contributes quite a bit to what we're doing here at the college. Now, we partially cover operating expenses through our annual fundraising efforts, but not so much with our endowment draw, which is mostly restricted to supporting financial aid awards 
or specific academic programs. So that so it's a big piece of what we do. But in my lifetime, in our lifetimes, the investment income is still going to supplement the enrollment income, the tuition income. So our fundraising efforts are currently focused on a couple of initiatives that support a path to increasing student enrollment. So for this five-year period, we're focused on creating a new student center. We're focused on creating and funding some new programs. So our fundraising efforts are more focused on the short term and fueling and supporting enrollment growth and sustainable revenue. But we are always building the endowment, right, both through an active investment policy as well as our fundraising efforts. And it may be the case that as we get through our upcoming campaign that we decide our next campaign is focused on trying to boost the endowment. But it is a tough time, I believe, in higher education right now, just the conflict, the competition between immediate needs and long-term health of the college, between spending for today and investing in the endowment. I think those two goals certainly support each other, but also are competing for today's dollars, maybe maybe more so than in a long time. Do you find that a lot of your kind of external relations is spent on fundraising? Yeah, I think we are in a small town. So our folks within 50 or 100 miles of us so a lot of that, a lot of those community relations are spent in ways that at least have fundraising in mind, right? And that's more annual fundraising, supporting the fine arts, supporting athletics, and then external relations relationships further afield, right? Particularly with alumni or longtime friends of the college are definitely with conducted with the mind towards the fundraising goals. Okay, imagine a huge benefactor steps forward and says, Dr. Andrews, I want you to take this money, this big pot of money, I don't know, put, make it seven zeros, and you can use it any way you want. I'm going to let you decide. Where do you think you would put the money? Like, is it operations? Is it mission-oriented? Where would you put the money? Yeah, I have lots of ways. And <laughs> Sarah, I would say, right, that every Tuesday and Saturday, I think about this as I play the Powerball and hope to win. <laughs> so I think it starts with, number one, improving the student experience. For us right now at Brevard College, that would be creating a robust and an exciting student center. So it would be a facility, right? The next place that I go, is, as we talked about earlier, is revenue generation, yeah. new, investing in new programs, or even more importantly, if we were able to make it work financially with a one-time gift, investing in new program builders. So hiring somebody to, to come and excite us and inspire us. Then I think to me, the next piece is supporting our faculty and staff, increasing our morale. So uh, that's difficult to do with a benefactor, right? It's hard to subsidize regular compensation increases from a one-time gift, but figuring out ways to give back to our faculty and staff for all that they give to the college and to our students. Those would be the three considerations in my mind. How do we first improve the student experience in a way that students value and recognize? How uh, can we invest this money that will bring us revenue moving forward that we can redirect in ways that we want to redirect? And how do we support these great people who make Brevard College such an incredible place? Well, as we're wrapping up here, I would love for you to share your best advice for college leaders to operate a financially viable institution, 
could be related to smaller size schools and managing that, or it could be related to something in the larger trend of higher ed. So this is advice I received from somebody or language that I received from somebody as I was grappling with this. My advice is we just have to start before anything else with living within our means. And there's no way to grow or build or maintain an institution if we're not living within our means. So that is, that's job number one, I believe, or constraint number one or rule number one. And what I heard from somebody is one way to spend less than you make is to spend less than you make. And the other way to spend less than you make is to increase what you make, right? Of course, you need to do both, I believe. As a college president, as a leader of an institution, in order to be financially viable, you do need to figure out ways to increase the resources available to deliver your mission. But you need to be disciplined about your expenditures and say no if you don't have the extra dollars to do it. And at the end of the day, it's all about sustainable revenue, which for us is primarily enrollment. So whatever we are able to generate to invest in what we're doing should really be invested in ways that students value most. I think that's grand advice. I really appreciate, you know, your heart comes through and just to focus on student, I think is so key. So fantastic. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. And I am sure there's some listeners out there who are going to want to continue this conversation with you and reach out to you. So what we will do is we will include in our show notes, some tidbits for your website and your LinkedIn so they can contact you directly. Thank you again so much. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate it. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.